Hi everyone, it's Adam from Monkey Tennis here. Just saying a huge thank you to all of you that have supported my charity appeal uh, so far. For those that haven't heard about it, this September I'm going to be swimming uh, 15 kilometres uh, between five islands in Cornwall. Uh, I'll be swimming the Isles of Scilly. That's Scilly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. Um, I'm doing it because I want to, but also to raise money for Calm, the campaign against living miserably. It's a well-known statistic that 125 people in the UK die by suicide every week, and Calm run a free and confidential helpline for people to speak through their problems and ultimately to help prevent suicides. Um, I'm looking to raise enough money to train two new phone workers um, to man those lines um, and I'll be doing it by swimming the Isles of Scilly in Cornwall. Um, if you're looking to support me, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, you can donate at justgiving.com. Um, just go there and search for Adam Swim Silly. That's Adam Swim Silly, S-C-I-L-L-Y. All donations greatly appreciated. Thank you for helping me to support Calm. And now, on with monkey tennis. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and aha, monkey tennis listeners. Tom Stab here. Before we get on with this week's episode, I just wanted to remind you about our live show at the Prince Charles Cinema on November the 22nd, where we'll be discussing all things Knowing Me, Knowing Yule, as well as a Q&A with Simon Greenall, a.k.a. Michael the Geordie. For those of you new to the podcast or didn't make it to our Alpha Papa live show last year or catch us at MCM Comic Con in July, you'll be getting to see us go into the usual in-depth analysis you've come to expect from the Monkey Tennis team. Plus all the random tangents, questions to the group, and there might even be a little audience participation as well. At previous live shows, we've learned that Tom Dark sounds like Will from the Inbetweeners, no one of any note has been buried at sea apart from Megatron, and an unnamed audience member was outed at doing a shit in a box. So, if you like the sound of that, then join us at the Prince Charles Cinema on November the 22nd. Tickets are available now at postpoppodcast.com slash monkey tennis live and now on with the episode right i'm better now i'm more natural i'm ready to go because it's not your bit yes <laughs> you don't have to have done anything <laughs> oh that was a low blow. <laughs> <laughs> even for you i know that was a low blow <laughs> Monkey tennis? Smelly Allen Fartridge. Linton Travel Tavern seemed an obvious choice. Monkey tennis? At the BBC of all places. Be real. Monkey tennis? Where's my assistant? I do not know. Monkey tennis? I wish things had turned out differently, but I'm glad they didn't. Monkey tennis? It will be called Allen's Show. 
I decided and would be absolutely ace. Monkey tennis? But needless to say, I had the last laugh. Hello everyone and welcome. Welcome to Monkey Tennis, the Alan Partridge fan podcast. I'm Adam Brooks and I'm joined as ever by Tom Dark. My career was about to go megastrophic. Nick Older. Indigenous pop. And Tom Stab. I have no issue with Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're moving on. We're obviously tackling I Partridge week by week. Uh, we need to talk about Alan. And we're now on to uh, chapter nine, the move to TV, which marks the start of Tom Dark's phase of Partridge history. Yeah, so I'm going to guide us through what you could argue is Alan's uh, rise and fall in, in <laughs> over the next few chapters. Um, so, yeah, let's uh, get stuck into chapter nine, the move to TV. Adam, can you tell us what is on the mandatory soundtrack for this chapter? Yes, just to recap for everybody, uh, Alan has left us a mandatory uh, list of songs to listen to as we move through the book. So uh, the tracks you need to listen to for the move to TV are If I Was dot 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 by Mid Your and Japanese Boy by Aneka. Don't there we know, go. Don't know who it is. Uh, no, but it's fine. Uh, and we have compiled all of those onto a Spotify playlist, which we, we will, uh, which we will have occasionally posted on our social media. So, chapter nine: the move to TV. Well, it's worth starting out that obviously the big joke about this chapter is that he doesn't actually move to TV in this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> He's got it very, very wrong. Uh, but to take it to the beginning, so Alan starts the chapter with. And then came the news that the programme was to be transferred to BBC television. What's really great about this is when the call comes into the Pear Tree Productions office, he's actually checking out a new BP garage. Just so I, busy. Yep. Which he spends <laughs> two whole pages talking about. Oh, he goes into great detail. Uh, he wasn't in the office. I was in Ealing. I'd heard that BP had done a pretty awesome job on the refurb of one of their garages. <laughs> so I'd driven over to take a look. And yeah, as you rightly say, there is a multi-page description uh, I'll just take a highlight from it here. Sorry, where where do you hear that news? <laughs> Where's he getting that info? There's the chat on Twitter <laughs> on the BT it's grapevine. It's trending. <laughs> that is a very good question. I don't I don't know. Maybe he's just got friends at garage forecourts across the nation. Yep. Michael's yep. one of a network. <laughs> do you think the call comes in at like five in the morning? It's happened. They, they've opened. So some some of the things that Alan points out: what a forecourt, crisp new signage, beautifully relaid tarmac. Uh, he goes on to, um, for the hungry driver in particular, the pickings were rich. My eyes darted across the chill cabinets. Microwave pasties, reheat and eat pies, packaged sandwiches. The choice of perishables was truly humbling. I mean, they're all staples of every yeah. <laughs> garage, <laughs> aren't they? And and most news agents as well. Yeah, maybe yeah. 2000, uh, oh no, when was this? This was actually back in the day, wasn't it? So I suppose at that point, like microwave what, yeah, pasties could have been revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah, this was described as a new era of petrol station <laughs> excellence. Yeah. Uh, and the next quantum leap, he used the words quantum leap, forward came in 2003 when once again BP broke the mould with their <laughs> wild bean cafes. Quite simply, shit hot. <laughs> I mean, it is. Exactly. It is quite simply shit hot. Yeah, That's exactly. the joke. That's and, the also, gag. and also, I've got that, that bit in the book marked as a... Uh, Nick, <laughs> <laughs> you love Big a fan of the wild. You bean. love a wild bean cafe, uh, don't you? Yeah, brilliant, absolutely brilliant, love it. Uh, so yeah, uh, we'll, we'll move on from the from the BP garage for now. Um, so yeah, when Alan learns that they've had the call from the BBC, uh, he uses the phrase, "My career was about to go megastrophic," and as I said, 
He thinks that they're about to go on BBC television, but as it turns out, they are actually about to be commissioned for BBC radio. Also, there's a nice bit here when he finds out the news. Uh, it's a, another recurring theme through I Partridge where he sort of uses hindsight to suggest what people might have been imagining or thinking. He says, uh, we found out this morning, but you weren't around, uh, the person you called him said. I'd have phoned you, but mobile phones haven't yet reached mainstream <laughs> adoption, his shrug seemed to add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a uh, common trope throughout the book, isn't it? Like yeah, absolutely. Guessing what people are thinking. Um, so Alan then takes us on a, a riotous tale of a, a night out in Japan with Sally Gunnell. So he's talking through um, some of the highlights of his sporting uh, commentary career. Um, so befriending the likes of Linford Christie, Sally Gunnell, and the not unattractive Fatima Whitbread. Alan's words, not mine. Um, and then he says, if pushed though, he'd have to say his favourite was Sally Gunnell. So just to recap that Sally Gunnell... Uh, was British, former track and field athlete, and she won Olympic gold uh, 400-meter hurdles in 1992. The only British female athlete to have won Olympic, World, European, and Commonwealth titles. So, to be fair, she's pretty good. Congrats, Sally. She's um, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Sally. You're pretty good. <laughs> uh, so, Alan's tale of being out on the source in Japan with Sally Gunnell is quite a highlight. So, it's worth delving into some of the details. Mm, definitely. Uh, basically, the way Alan tells it, Sally's gone and uh, she's run 400 metres. She's broken a new world record. And then within minutes, she'd put on high heels and a new pair of dungarees <laughs> and joined a bunch of her fellow athletes at a local bar. High heels and dungarees? Is that a, uh, is that a, is that a, a common uh, look? I, with, I don't think it is. a big ballsy squirt of perfume. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you could probably smell a perfume in Hiroshima, says Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he goes on, uh, she'd actually only been running for 53.16 seconds, a new British record, so it seemed crazy to shower. A wet wipe administered to the main danger zones had been deemed more than adequate. <laughs> now, when I was researching uh, Sally Gunnell, just to do some fact-checking, uh, it came to my attention that she is basically available for uh, keynotes and speeches in all price ranges. Um, so... I got in touch, obviously. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, uh, so, yeah, she's represented... So I presume she's arriving any minute? Any, any minute, any minute now. Um, so, yeah, available for large events, conferences, staff meetings, keynotes for the young or elderly. Staff meetings? Yeah, this is literally what <laughs> it says on the, on, the web, on the website that has, has her on their books. Um, they are able to facilitate, um, yeah, staff meetings, keynotes for young or elderly or a debate. Uh, we're able to facilitate facilitate communication between you and the speaker. Um, For young and elderly, she will not do in between. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's maybe the website is using generic terminology for uh, everyone on their books there. Um, but for Sally Gunnell in particular, she is listed as her keynote topics being motivational, inspirational, sustaining high performance, health, living, work, and life balance. So I got in touch. I sent them the following message. Would Sally be available for a chat on the phone to talk about the night out she had with Alan Partridge in Japan? <laughs> as detailed in his autobiography, I Partridge, we need to talk about Alan. Also, as a general query, what kind of cost would Sally charge to take part in a one-hour one podcast recording via Skype or phone? It'd be fine. No need to travel. Now, I have had a response. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Although, just, 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 to, just to give some context here, Tom hasn't told us this information. This is the first time we're hearing this, so this is genuine this is shock and surprise. This, this is, is genuine excitement from the rest of us here. I, I feel bad now because I feel like you guys have already got your hopes up a bit too high. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Out of office. The, the email reads as follows. Dear Tim... <laughs> We're off to a good start. <laughs> Thank you for your request for Sally Gunnell. I will get back to you as soon as possible. Have a good day. 
And how, how, long, how long ago was that sent? Oh, that was about a week ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will keep you updated. We won't. We won't. <laughs> Do you think that what's happened, though, is I assume that's like her agent or something like that has gone to her with that genuine request and she goes, you do know this is a like... <laughs> I really, I really like, hope so. <laughs> he's I basically really, yeah. been fired. Yeah, <laughs> quite possibly. Uh, uh, it, just yeah. one more thing on, on, on Sally. Uh, in the book, it's referenced that this is the uh, Athletics World Championships in 1991 where she breaks the British world record of running a time of 53.16 seconds yep. in the 400 metres yep. hurdles. Um, Sally is still the British record holder for that distance for the 400 metres hurdles. Like I said, she really is very good. Yeah, but she actually, yeah, but she actually broke her own record. It's uh, It currently stands at the at uh, the rather impressive time of 52 seconds, uh, 52.74 seconds, which was uh, done in Stuttgart in the World Championship. So she broke her own record. So, that is yeah, very fast. As Tom said, she's pretty good. Yeah, she's yeah. pretty good. Equally impressive, when uh, her and Alan go out on the sake, drinking, getting drunk by accident, and yeah. apparently didn't realise it was alcoholic, she dares him to pick up a bin and smash it into the window of a nearby shop. <laughs> Get on, Sally. <laughs> well, so yeah, I, I wanted to delve in more into their night out. but So they are... Uh, they are miffed by as they browse the menu. <laughs> so as Alan says, uh, back then things were different. Back then our tastes were simpler and less foreign. As a result, Sal and myself were pretty miffed as we browsed the menu. What was all this stuff? He then goes on, our attitude was very much when in Rome. So when the waiter came <laughs> round, we went for it and ordered a couple of bowls of rice. <laughs> <laughs> the height of exoticism. Push there. the boat out. The, uh, the chat is pretty exciting as well. They cover a wide range of uh, subjects, including favourite film, best cheese, biggest regret, smallest regret, and euthanasia. <laughs> best cheese. Go. Ooh. Cathedral City? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, God. I think different cheeses for different occasions. Yeah, though. I like an oak smoked cheddar. Good yeah, shout, applewood good shout. smoked is a, is, yeah, a, is, a, yeah. is a quality cheese. Yeah. yeah. Dark? Well, I just said applewood smoked. Kind of the same one. Port, port Salou's nice. Port <laughs> That is Have that, that is, sandwich. That is flavourless plastic. Halloumi <laughs> none. Uh, it's halloumi. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Slide that controversy an, Halloumi's not an all use... To, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, they've had some <laughs> We haven't got time rice, to get into this. And then... <laughs> And then they, uh, yeah, they get accidentally drunk on sake. And as Alan says, they were catastrophically ming-monged. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sally was so gone she thought her silver medal was currency. And I was so <laughs> gone that I later mistook Sally for Chris Akabusi. <laughs> <laughs> Look him up. <laughs> so bearing that in mind, should we talk about Chris Akabusi? Awuga. <laughs> oh, we didn't practice that. <laughs> well, that's interesting that that's what you start with because it's a bit of a misnomer that he's famous for saying awuga. That yeah, was actually John Fashanu. John Fashanu. Um, <laughs> On gladiators. I, now, I, I just, I've just got to say, I've, I've, so I'm glancing at your notes, yeah. and there's a, a, a website address. Yeah, that you're, you're ruining to it be for yourself. Absolute gold. Yeah, I won't spoil it. So, I tell you what, we're going to work our way towards that. Okay, let's okay. just talk through Chris Hakabusi's career slightly. He actually joined the British Army in 1975, uh, and then went on to be an Olympic athlete, competing in such events as 400 uh, meter hurdles, four by 400 meter relay. Uh, he's got several golds, bronzes, silvers across Olympic Games, World Championships, European Championships, Commonwealth Games. Again, he's pretty good at what he does. <laughs> uh, he's also worked on a lot of TV shows, including Record Breakers, The Big Breakfast. He's been a panellist on things such as Question of Sport. They think it's all over through the keyhole. My, uh, notes from Wikipedia here. 
Through these appearances, he's become well-known for having an over-the-top laugh. Uh, he's also appeared in Come Dine With Me and A League of Their Own. But what I like the most, in 1997, he appeared as a milkman on Last of the Summer Wine. <laughs> <laughs> I'd there's like a, to see that. There's a, I'm going to see if I can dig it out. This has just rung a bell about a really weird YouTube video that I saw years ago where Chris Akabusi is, is like a, it's an advert for water or something, like for, for water meters or something. And he has a kind of conversation with an imaginary woman about like getting in the shower and her... Uh, like making him a boiled egg and stuff like that like he has the conversation like she's there but you never see her and she never responds and then it just cuts to him in the shower it's really weird it I'm sounds gonna... like uh, Alan's Hamilton water breaks <laughs> where he's <laughs> talk, talking to his wife that's a mannequin it's very partridge I'm going to dig it out because it is brilliant I like that's that he, like he, nightmare, he yeah. also says in the book I was so gone I later mistook Sally for Chris Akabusi look him up so despite the fact him and Sally are probably equally decorated uh, he expects that you wouldn't know who Chris Akabusi is but you would know Sally Gunnell <laughs> And, well, I think also the point that Chris Agabusi is very much a black man and Sally Gunnell is a white woman. <laughs> there is also that, yeah. <laughs> Alan. That's the joke. Um, so, yeah, so now get on to what uh, Nick's already clocked on my laptop screen here. So the Chris Agabusi Awuga connection is thus. Um, <laughs> there is a fan fiction website where um, <laughs> the address of which is chrisagabusisexstories.blogspot.co.uk. Wow. <laughs> The stories always conclude with uh, he bent down, whispered a wooger in her ear and, and patted her on the fanny. <laughs> and there are hundreds of these. That's done me. There are literally hundreds. I'd say we'll share the link on our socials, but oh. I'm not sure we should. Wow. Well, they, people know what the link is now. You read it out. So yeah, they yeah, yeah. Researching your own. Chris Agabusi, sex stories, .blogspot.co.uk. Very much <laughs> not safe for work or indeed life. <laughs> Oh, so we'll move on from uh, uh, dear Chris now. Um, so yeah, as we said, um, they are Ming Monged on Saki. So Alan dares Sally Gunnell to hop all the way back to the hotel. She did. She dared him to pick up a bin and smash in the window of a nearby shop. He, <laughs> he didn't. didn't. Um, and then I loved the the conclusion of this story. When we finally made it back to our digs, we couldn't believe our eyes. It was nearly quarter to eleven. What, <laughs> what a, a night! night. <laughs> and then sub note: that's Nick's ideal night out. Oh, absolutely. In yeah, fact, yeah. that's a little bit late for you. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely, that's bedtime. Yeah. Um, so continuing in this chapter, we have a very important meeting with the late, great Des Lynham. Uh, and Alan meets him coming out of the disabled toilet. That's Des coming out of the disabled mm -hmm. toilet, not Alan, to be clear. Uh, because Lynham, although encumbered by disability... Sorry, can I just jump in? You said the late, great. He's not dead. That's, <laughs> that's what it says in the book, though. Oh, <laughs> right, sorry, my mistake. So that's that's Alan's faux pas, not mine. Okay, I just double checked. Well, I don't remember him dying. He's very much alive, Alan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lynam is coming out of the disabled bogs um, because, as Alan says, even though Lynam was unencumbered by disability, he was also a senior figure in the BBC of the 90s. As such, he was contractually entitled to use these roomier facilities whenever he wished. <laughs> just to stretch his legs out. So, so question to the group. Has anyone ever been busted using a disabled loo when they shouldn't have been? Uh, no, but isn't that a curb sketch? I'm sure uh, there's a quite there's possibly. A uh, and I think I that. remember. I think Frank Skinner had something in a stand-up show back in the '90s about being busted using a disabled loo when someone was queuing to use it. So when he came out, or his friend came out pretending to be a bit disabled, <laughs> I can't remember the curb sketch. It might have had a similar disabled, conclusion. I dread to think. Classic, yeah, exactly. Classic Skinner '90s it, material. Yeah, it was not PC. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so what's quite interesting about his uh, conversation with Des Lynam is, uh, Lynam says, 
Alan, your broadcasting voice is solid enough, but it's too nasal. If you want to make the leap to TV, and then Alan's saying, I do, Des, I do, I, I do, thought to myself. Yeah. Um, back to Lynam. Lynam says, you want to pull the nasality up about a quarter. Nasality. We covered yeah. this on a previous episode, didn't we? Because it, it papers over a, a pro- an issue. that Yeah, the, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a very clever piece of writing, really, because Alan's voice has changed significantly from the on-the-hour day-to-day early years through to the Alan of today. The Alan of today... Sounds a bit more normal, sounds a bit more Mancunian, sounds mm. a lot more like Steve Coogan, yeah. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the early days, he basically sounds a bit like John Watson or somebody like that. Um, so, yeah, I just like the way that they've created an, an explanation in the narrative here as why that happened, that it was a, it was a conscious decision by Alan to do that based on Lynham's expertise. Uh, so, some Des Lynham facts now. Oh, yeah. I'll is. talk you through. How about a Lynham timeline? The timeline. 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 Uh, so, born 1942, joined the BBC in 1968, starting at BBC Radio Brighton, of all places. Ooh. In 1977, he made the move to TV. So, five years before he made that move, uh, Alan should take note, uh, presenting Sportswide, then on to Grandstand. In 88 to 89, he was presenting Holiday. In 1998, yeah, in 1998, he was doing Radio 2 Drive Time, only on Fridays, though. Uh, 1999 to 2004, he moved to ITV's football coverage. And yet in 2005, Lynham admitted he regretted that decision moving to ITV from the BBC, saying, if it was a decision I had to make now, I probably wouldn't do it. Some people said I went from being a great broadcaster, or at least an acceptably good one, to being a somewhat inadequate one overnight. <laughs> Which sounds like the sort of thing Alan would say. Yeah. Uh, back, to the, back to the timeline. 2005, he was presenting Countdown, and in 2003, he went on record as being a UKIP supporter. Oh, that's not quite oh. so good, is oh, it? No. Oh, no. Uh, we'll probably move on from there. <laughs> not a happy um, So, yeah, you then got more from Alan about the voice. It was the voice that I still use today. Highbrow, yet inclusive. Candid, yet mysterious. Loud, yet quiet. In short, it was the voice of I, Partridge. And I did uh, dig out a quote from Armando Iannucci uh, from the Empire podcast. And he did say, uh, acknowledging uh, Alan's voice was very Motson in the early days. And uh, Iannucci said, our voice boxes change over decades. I don't know how true that really is, but I'll go with it. Getting the excuses in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then toward, yeah, just I just had one more note about this chapter, uh, which is in the footnote section where Alan talks about bumping into former grandstand presenter, Frank Boff at a fancy dress party in Shepherd's Bush, brackets, long story. Yep. Uh, but then he mentioned Frank simply took the <laughs> took the ball gag out of his mouth and said, you're not wrong, before dropping to all fours and being led away. I'm not sure if Alan was at a fancy dress party <laughs> or, or something entirely different. Well, you know that story, don't you? There was like a whole like expose. Oh, okay. Uh, my ignorance there. So is that based on a real thing? Yeah. So in 1988, uh, Boff was sacked by the BBC when uh, I'm reading from uh, uh, from Wikipedia here, when he became mired in a sex and drug scandal which involved taking cocaine and wearing lingerie at sex parties. Frank oh. Boff said, I took drugs with Vice Girls. And the new, it was a News of the World uh, headline. Needless oh. to say. <laughs> so yeah, that's actually a reference to a real life yeah, yeah, okay. story and event. Nice, nice. Uh, okay, well, that's kind of all I had for chapter nine, unless if anyone else has any other points. You. Okay, in that case, we'll move on to chapter ten. My own show. Now, the mandatory uh, music for this chapter, if you're listening along at home, uh, is <laughs> License to Kill, Gladys Knight, The Winner Takes It All, ABBA, Knowing Me, Knowing You, ABBA, obviously, and uh, Is It a Dream, Classic Nouveau. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. 
And I, I like that the songs do give you a bit of an indication about Alan's frame of mind with these chapters, the winner takes it all and so on. Uh, my own show in this chapter refers to Knowing Me, Knowing You, the radio show. So even though the last chapter was the move to TV, he still hasn't moved to TV by this point. <laughs> Very much overdue. <laughs> um, so yeah, he uh, we've kind of got at the beginning of the chapter, he's talking about his attitude regarding the general public. <laughs> the realisation that these people would stab me and spit on my jolting corpse probably did colour my approach to the general public, he writes. Um, he steals himself against hangers-on and well-wishes, typically meeting their so-called compliments with a snort or stony silence. So yeah, Alan's newfound approach to his perceived success is that he's not going to engage with the public or well-wishes, which is a, sounds like a very Alan way <laughs> to do oh, it. Isn't it? A recipe for success. It's yes. on trend with Alan. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong there? <laughs> I assume we're going to cover off the uh, Dale Winton uh, point here. <laughs> I, I think this is probably something that everyone wants to, to discuss. It's literally coming up next. Okay. Talk about it now. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, so, so Alan is essentially, it turns out, basing his, this approach on Dale Winton. He said it had worked for Dale Winton, who could switch from air-kissing a commissioning editor to screaming hot spittle into the face of a researcher in about three seconds. But mitigating circumstances, Alan says that Dale was inhaling a lot of nail varnish remover around that time, I'm told. <laughs> Um, so obviously we need to talk about Dale, some Dale Winton facts next, don't we? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, I hope this is coming, and it is. <laughs> um, so obviously Dale is best known for presenting Supermarket Sweep, uh, which ran from 93 to 2000 and again in 2007. Wow, seven years. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, quite good, though. I watched that a lot at university. <laughs> <laughs> Getting all your work there. Hang on, what year did you join university? 2000 and... Same as you. Yeah, so it was off air by then. Oh. It's called a repeat. <laughs> <laughs> UK gold all day. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, so hosted National Lottery in it to win it since 2002. Awful. And a 2008 <laughs> series of Hole in the Wall. I can't say I've watched either of those. Oh, Hole Ring in the Wall. Hole in the Wall, <laughs> Ring on on the wall. wall was brilliant. But even, it gets even better, though. In 95 and 96, he presented Pets Win Prizes. Yes. Mm. Brilliant. I've also made a note there. Nick would like. Oh, would, re would recommission. Yeah. yeah. And in 2001, he presented Channel 5's endurance show, Touch the Truck. What? Now, I do, oh, I do remember do that being remember, a thing. Oh, you, no. Do you yeah. not remember the premise of that show? No. no. This is back. This is when Channel 5 were desperate for great program, compelling program ideas that could be made on a budget of next to nothing. <laughs> the idea was... Naked Jungle. <laughs> yes, it does include Keith Chegwin's Naked Jungle. <laughs> the basic premise of Touch the Truck, for those of you not familiar, I never saw it, but I read about it because it's ridiculous. Mm. There's a truck. I, I've got an idea as to what it could be. Yeah. There's a truck. Contestants are invited to touch it. The last person touch this goes on for days. The last person touching it wins the truck. That is the Oh what? So they, they start by just like putting their <laughs> yeah. hand on the yeah. truck. If you fall asleep, if you fall over, if you leave, yeah. you lose your right to win the truck. Wow. If it's the last person touching the truck, the truck is yours. Wow. This, this was a TV show. Yeah. Incredible. I'm quite, quite, quite keen to see if that's on YouTube. Yeah. I am. Deliver well. it later. Yes. Yep. Best of DVD, I'm sure it's available <laughs> in all good bins. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's all I kind of really had on Dale Winton. But I did notice that the um, kind of Google autocomplete, when you go to search for him, the top the top search that always comes up is, is Dale Winton dead? <laughs> as far <laughs> as I Dale. can tell. Yeah, as far as I could tell, he's still very much alive. I'm sure he's probably listening. Hi, still, Dale. still with us. So, Anything else on Dale Winton? Uh, but that's all I had. I don't know if anyone else has only done any uh, Dale Winton research. I've just quickly looked on YouTube and uh, there's a clip of Dale Winton from Would I Lie to You where it just says, did Dale Winton sleep with a potato? <laughs> True. <laughs> Does that mean sex? What? Let, no, let's not anyway, get let's bogged down on. in that. Um, so the next note I had on this chapter is... <laughs> oh no, Nick's still on Dale Winton. <laughs> oh no, 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 that's talking him talking about depression. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's move on. I'm, we're leaving so that in. The ne- oh, God, yeah. God, yeah. So, cool. so the next note I had on this chapter was this is where you finally get the first full instance of, needless to say, I had the last laugh. Having the last laugh is actually only happens twice in this book. It does happen once earlier, but it's not the full classic phrase that we're looking for there. And you've also got a classic Alan phrase coming up here. The role of a commissioner is basically to put a ticker across in a box. <laughs> I mean, that's accurate, isn't it? Can yeah. we also yeah. talk briefly about uh, about the uh, them touching on Piers Morgan? <laughs> Absolutely love this bit. He said, uh, I had an easy way with people and much like Piers Morgan today was able to flit effortlessly from the highbrow to the utterly juvenile, from the serious to the inconsequential in a heartbeat. Unlike Morgan, I can also flip back the other way, whereas he is often stranded in thick alley for the remainder of the conversation. <laughs> that, that's essentially Coogan writing that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in fact, throughout this uh, this book, whenever Alan describes someone as basically, as he does with Piers Morgan, a good interviewer and a solid guy, you know that effectively that's an insult. That, a compliment from Alan yeah. is an insult from the writers of this yeah, book. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So continuing the chapter, Alan is zooming towards Shepherd's Bush because he is ready... To make his t- to have his initial meetings to make the TV debut, uh, as he writes, it would be called Alan's Show. I decided it would be absolutely ace. And as we learn in the book, he wants every show to be called yeah. Alan's Show, and it always gets shot down as it should. Yes. Um, so he arrives at uh, BBC TV Centre, and the receptionist has no record of the uh, Mr. Walters who he's supposed to be meeting. <laughs> I love this bit. Are you sure he works for BBC TV? She says to him. Then everything went quiet, mouth dry, head spinning, and suddenly keen for a poo. <laughs> I staggered from television centre. Steadying myself against an old woman who was there <laughs> for the BBC tour. <laughs> so what Alan's done here, he's automatically assumed that his own show is going to be on television, but it's actually going to be on Radio 4. Um, so he makes his way to Radio 4 and has a successful meeting to essentially broker the deal of having his own show. And in that meeting, he jokes that he owns his own production company and would make the show himself in exchange for a hefty development and production fee. So, very important here that Alan maintains that was a joke that was somehow taken at face value. And also, we basically learned that Pear Tree Productions was started by accident. Yes. Yeah. Oh, and and, and was started by an underage crew of staff that should have been at school. Yes, he, he gains the workforce by... He creates a production company by putting up posters around Norwich and giving work experience to family, friends, and lo, Pear Tree Productions was born. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, many of the staff should have technically been at school. And this continues... Unable to afford celebrity bookers, we relied on two researchers, Lisa and Jason, to approach agents. And on the whole, they did a good job. I think we can all agree they did a terrible job. Yes, they did a yeah. terrible and job. And this is something we talked about when we were yeah. focusing on the TV show of Knowing Me, Knowing You, that the calibre of guests was far below what you'd expect for a yeah, primetime th- chat show. I think if you look at it in Alan Universe, I think arguably they're not like... A-list celebrities he's getting on the show. They're very much a kind of C or D-list level of celebrity. He gets a couple, doesn't he? He gets Roger Moore, who obviously never turns up. He gets the, no, two, he act- turn up. He gets yeah. the two Hollywood actors. Uh, They're couple. about as good as it gets, yeah. yeah. But then you get, you know, child directors. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah hip- Although they are hypnotists. A-list as well. They're A-list. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I think the kind of the conceit is that the perhaps they're not actually that good because they're mm. kind of they're, all of their careers are kind of on the down on yes, the whole. Yes. And I think the other point to this is it's also kind of explained they're all kind of awfully behaved across the radio show and the TV show. Often egged on by Alan, to be honest, but I like the fact that he's essentially blaming it on two very junior uh, researchers doing that job. He always lights the fire, but they are chat dynamite. They blow up in his face. So you're you're, you're partly blaming the cannabis-addled lunatics that he's employed to do his bidding. 
Although um, he does obviously rifle through the, uh, Lisa's bag when he suspects her <laughs> of smoking cannabis. But doesn't find anything. Doesn't find anything. And she goes berserk, I'd say rightly so. Yep. Although he counters it with her attitude really, really stank sometimes. <laughs> so we also get the origins of Alan's aha catchphrase in this chapter. What is aha, Alan writes? Well, it's a duosyllabic exclamation that has spilled from my chops and given pleasure to millions across the globe. Millions. Millions. <laughs> that is questionable. Do you think, in a, back to real life now, out of Alan's world, that the phrase aha has given pleasure to millions across the globe? Or are we still not quite in millions, even in real life? Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. I think if you think yeah. of the, the viewership just for the TV shows in the UK alone, mm-hmm. it's definitely millions. That's millions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's millions. Um, <laughs> that's number one. <laughs> So we, we can do a little compare and contrast here of what Alan says about the catchphrase in his autobiography and what Coogan says ah, about the catchphrase in yes. his autobiography. Um, so Alan says, Aha, I boomed. It just came out. Wallop. The audience didn't know what to say. Me, I took it in my stride, literally shaking at how right, how ruddy correct it had felt. Given he's an unreliable narrator, do we really believe this? Uh, I would think, actually, it was a lot more calculated than he hoped it would become a catchphrase, and it was very much planned for. I think he's probably spent weeks workshopping ABBA-related catchphrases yeah. in yeah. front of a mirror, and they've not worked. And so yeah. he found one that doesn't work, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and before we go to what Coogan says about catchphrase, Alan further says uh, about people basically shouting the catchphrase at him in the street. It doesn't bother me. I'm fine with it. I like it. It makes me feel good and glad. Why shouldn't it? So if people think it does bother me or they're getting one over on me or that it might be a good way of riling me, they could literally not be further from the truth. I do not give a fucking shit either way. (laughs) And I think we know the opposite is exactly what's true there. He hates it. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, He also mentions it's voted years later 84th in Channel 4's 100 best catchphrases. Is that true of real life? No, that's not a real thing. Okay. Um, So yeah, just uh, a little note from Coogan's autobiography. He says... Uh, he had a chat with Patrick Marber after some of the initial uh, radio recordings. And Marber said, this character is going to change your life. I hope you're ready for it. People are going to be shouting, aha, at you across the street. Coogan says, I was floating on air after that recording. Everything was lining up perfectly. Needless to say, <laughs> yeah, he had the, the last, last laugh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so continuing the chapter, Alan flies to Gothenburg to negotiate directly with Bjorn and Benjamin from ABBA to negotiate rights to shout but not say the word aha 50 times a year in perpetuity for the rest of my life or until 2015, whichever which comes come sooner. sooner. So presumably he's had to renegotiate that now yeah, to yeah, uh, yeah. continue. Uh, well, no, it's to all the rest of his life. So he's not dead. So it's fine. Uh, yeah. No, it says in perpetuity for the rest of my life or until 2015, whichever comes sooner. 2015 came sooner than the end of his life. You're so right. he has to renegotiate. Do we reckon that actually happened? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Basically, that can be the kind of theme throughout this entire thing. Did that actually happen? <laughs> yeah. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah. No. I had a note as well that Alan refers to the controversial lawyer Nick Ford, one of the radio show guests, as an especially crass interviewee because he doesn't attempt to hide his homosexuality <laughs> at all, as far as he can tell. Wow. That's the first Alan. of several yeah. uh, very homophobic comments from Alan which I think we can discuss in a bit more length uh, in some later chapters. I wonder if they've ramped that up gently towards the uh, arrival of Glenn Ponder. It's a bit of a, th- a bit a bit of a, a, a yeah, well Alan's forced to adapt his views. Yeah, well it's a, it's a consistent well I d- well does he adapt his views I think is well, the question to, to maybe, discuss. Maybe not much. Um and in the fi- so what's quite interesting I thought in the final show of Knowing Me Knowing You the radio version another guest dies on air. Now to be fair this isn't by Alan's hand. But Lord Morgan of Glossop, who is essentially the Forbes McAllister character of the radio version, 
Uh, yeah, basically has a heart attack mid-interview with Alan. Um, so Alan writes, After the final show, with Tony Hares heading for the car, I ran behind him, shouting hard to be heard over the noise as Lord Morgan's body was lifted into the ambulance. Tony, I said, are you going to put this baby on the goggle box or what? I'm but, starting to wonder if Alan is actually the devil. Yeah. He because had- he was at hospital radio during broadcasting during the deaths of 800 people. <laughs> that was two, over eight years, though. Yeah, two, that is a hospital as that's, well. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's still two people a week. <laughs> then uh, then he two people die on his watch, one deliberately by his hand, and then the next two commissioning editors of BBC Television both die, yep. more yeah, or less, yeah, yeah. in his presence or shortly after meeting with him. There's, uh, there's definitely something suspicious going yeah. on there. And also the fact he just doesn't give a shit about any of it either. It's just all about career advancement every yeah. time. Um, but I just thought it was quite an interesting aside that the death of Forbes McAllister, obviously, that is kind of Alan's fault, so that's a very large kind part of the downfall of his, of his career. The pistol shouldn't have been loaded in the first place. <laughs> yeah, Forbes' hands were sweaty. <laughs> exactly. We'll come on um, to it. But yeah, the fact that um, he never really talks about the fact that he had somebody die mid-interview yeah. on his first yeah, yeah. own show as well. That's just That's really glossed over and never yeah. referenced in anything subsequently. Um, and yeah, just this is one more note I had about uh, Pear Tree Productions here that um, some people have subsequently accused me of lying that I owned a production company. It wasn't a lie, it was a joke that was taken seriously. And if they can't see that, then they're idiots. So that's a classic bit of Alan there, placing the blame on others for believing him and making him have to set up the production company. And which is also an explanation for why <laughs> everything Pear Tree did was so inept because it's basically. Teenagers who should be at school. <laughs> yeah. Um, the bit where the uh, Lord Morgan uh, dies on air. Um, he also, again, blame shifting. Says Lord Morgan's family began legal action and asked some searching questions about our indemnity insurance. But I don't think anyone seriously believed we'd been responsible. Can you imagine cause of death? Chat. I don't think so. <laughs> and then he's put in the footnote. I'm laughing as I write this. <laughs> and so the final uh, few lines of that chapter. He says the next day I walked into Pear Tree Productions and doubled everyone's pay. Then sacked Lisa. Uh, presumably there's. No no grounds of sacking Lisa because he didn't find any cannabis. Also, really, did he double everyone's pay? <laughs> that, that sounds like the most un-Alan thing yeah, to do. The only that way he doubled their pay is if it was literally a pittance or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it was Go- a pittance. Government yeah. legislation came in that he had to meet yeah. the minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which I've done the maths. I've done the maths on this, and two times nothing is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, should we move on to chapter 11, Radio's Loss? Yep. Yes. Now, Adam, th- what's on the soundtrack? Well, there is no soundtrack for oh, this one. Ah. You'll just have to enjoy the sound of silence. <laughs> uh, I guess maybe that's why it's called Radio's Loss. Oh, very deep. Yeah. W- would Alan be that clever? Probably Let's not. Let's not get bogged down. Okay, so uh, finally in this chapter, it is time for Alan to make the move to TV. So even though he's had basically a car crash radio show on Radio 4, which did conclude with a man dying, Tony Hares has scheduled him in for a 9pm BBC2 slot. Do you think Tony Hares should have been harder on Alan? Like this, Tony Hares is actually not a good commissioner. No, yeah, exactly. Alan should not have been commissioned for a TV show full stop. How has this happened? Who signed this off? Well, Tony Hares. But is he? (laughs) (laughs) But he is. Is he literally like no? He doesn't. He's the. He's He's the the top commissioner for the BBC. So he he has no boss. He is the boss. I'm sure he has a boss, but he makes the calls. It's happened. So Alan's miffed by this because he thinks he should be on BBC One at 7pm. I did have an interesting note that uh, Knowing Me Knowing You, the TV show in real life, in our universe, actually aired at 10pm on BBC Two, not 9pm. So slightly inconsistent there. Not that it really matters. Even more angry about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't make a point of that in the narrative of this story that it got bumped or anything. But anyway, um, so, yeah, then Alan takes the um, egotistical point of view and decides that he's going to help BBC Two out of a hole. <laughs> if any, 
Uh, I looked at the bigger picture. If ever a TV channel needed helping out of a hole, it was BBC Two, 93 slash 94. I was the man to give it a shot in the arm. So Alan decides it's not going to get better than this. He's going to turn the channel's fortunes around. I like that there's a little bit more Top Gear bashing at this point as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> Top knew, Gear was shot. I knew damn well that its fortunes represented an accurate bellwether for BBC Two as a whole. In 1993-4, Top Gear, and by extension BBC Two, stank the place out. Tiff Needle's voice was cracking every other word like an early-day Michael McIntyre. Clarkson was a point away from a driving <laughs> ban, so was test-driving cars like they were hearses. <laughs> and then uh, he basically goes on to a long section about Quentin Wilson. Which basically culminates in him having to drive Quentin Wilson around in cars for about an hour once a week to try and re <laughs> Quaint him with cars. Oh yeah, that is that is great. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Alan's decided he's going to be the salvation of BBC Two, and he refers to it as a new dawn. And I just had a little note that I like. He says the nervous women who do typing and whatnot seemed less mousy than normal. So I thought, is it a thing that any women Alan thinks are beneath him are automatically deemed as mousy? Yes, it happens a lot with his assistant, and I think potentially, yeah, he he or looks, just women full he stop looks for the company of women who confirm that stereotype. Uh, so that's why he's got yeah. Lynn. That's why he ends up in the relationship with I can't remember her name, but the lady from uh, Alpha Papa, Angela. All people you could arguably describe as mousy, but uh, not people you could use to uh, generalize an entire uh, sex. <laughs> one one other point that's also worth pulling out is we spoke about Lisa in the um, previous chapter uh, that Alan had potentially fired um, with no grounds. Yeah, uh, we do learn that she took him to an employee employment tribunal <laughs> yep. uh, whilst we don't know what happened i just want to say fair play to you lisa for standing up to alan Good and on giving you. it a go yep. and also not the first vindictive employment tribunal that we're gonna <laughs> yeah. get even in this section <laughs> yeah yeah that leads us nicely onto the next chapter <laughs> yeah i think it's time to tackle chapter 12 glenn ponder musician Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, Glenn Ponder's track on the soundtrack is On the Wings of Love by Jeffrey Osborne. 
don't know it, but I'm sure it's great. They do. On the wings of love. I'm sure that's helped. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Definitely don't know it. Jed knew it. Double thumbs up. Double thumbs up from Jed. Oh, Jed, do you want a word this episode? Bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> he's done you, Adam. He's done you. Very good. Enjoy. I am shocked. <laughs> Okay, so the chapter about Glenn Ponder opens as thus. Say what you like about Glenn Ponder, and I have, frequently, but he was a virtuoso conductor of lounge music, possibly the most talented, easy-listening batsman of his era. So I thought from the outset, Alan's actually being very complimentary about Glenn here, so you're instantly informed that their relationship is back on track it's a bit of a after being sacked live on, live on air during Know Me Knowing You. Um, so, yeah, Alan talks us through the origins of meeting Glenn. He essentially finds him at a Norwich wine bar. Cafe Symphony. <laughs> now at long last, Nando's. <laughs> <laughs> More on Nando's shortly. Yep. Um, so, yeah, he introduced himself to Glenn as, uh, I'm Alan Partridge, and Glenn looks at him blankly. From Knowing Me Knowing You? I added still nothing. Then I added the day to day and on the hour fruitlessly. So basically, fame is still eluding him. I think him at you've this also point. missed out a key point there. He uh, approached him and says, "Mr. Ponder," I shouted as I approached. Let's have it then, fucker," he said. <laughs> that is absolutely brilliant. Great voice work. <laughs> uh, yeah, because Glenn is tasked with collecting all the small change at the end of the gig, so he's yeah, constantly thrown being towards the band. He's often yep. targeted by youths, vagrants, and Scots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Glenn agrees to work with Alan. Uh, in Alan's words, he agrees there and then before we'd even discuss terms or mention money, which I found both refreshing and a bit desperate. <laughs> so as their relationship continues, obviously, as we've seen from knowing me, knowing you, things fall apart. So as Alan goes on, uh, he wasn't expecting an unending gush of gratitude. He was anticipating a little bit of respect. What I got from Glenn, like, alongside rank amateurism and off-kilter comic timing, was literally a slap in the face, <laughs> and that hurt me. Can and we the talk- footnote to literally a slap yeah. in the face is not literally. <laughs> Can um, we talk slightly quickly about uh, Glenn's band's names as well? Because as we know, they change every episode during Knowing Me, Knowing You. Yeah. Uh, when Alan first meets Glenn, uh, the band is called Brandy Snaps, uh, and the current name at the publication of this book is Vajazzle. <laughs> What's uh, <laughs> Google it. You know. Google it. <laughs> yes, what, I did wonder. <laughs> What's obviously brilliant that Alan has no no uh, self-awareness that he's getting no respect from Glenn whilst they're working together because he's showing no respect to him in return, essentially. Um, so he goes on to list unexpected cymbal crashes, Glenn mumbling, <laughs> and an all-pervading <laughs> surliness from the band, which really put me off my stride. Um we should point out at this point, like, you don't see any of this on the TV show. No, no. He like, also forces Glenn to get a haircut. Yeah, yeah you do. There are <laughs> In the show when he sacks him, they deliberately continue playing the theme tune longer. They deliberately mishit things. Uh, yeah, okay. The band are moody with him every time he says hello to, uh, to them at the start of each episode. Yeah, okay, Not every episode. Well, it's just the one when, he's, when they get sacked, isn't it? Every time he says a heart to the band, they're just a bit like, uh-huh. they uh, just don't really mm-hmm. give a shit yeah, about, about it. Yeah. And then Alan says, my professionalism was such that I didn't betray even a flicker of displeasure on camera. And I think we can agree. We know this is a lie. He <laughs> cannot mask his disdain of Glenn Ponder. A on the show. huge deviation from what actually happens in yes. the show. Uh, again, unreliable narrator. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> and we then, there's a bit of discussion to have about uh, Alan and his relationships with homosexuals, I think, is what we need to get into in this chapter. As Alan writes, some have suggested that my relationship with Glenn soured when I learned he was gay. For crying out loud, if I really couldn't bear to consult with homosexuals, do you really think I'd have pursued a career in television at the BBC of all places? Be Be real! real. 
That is, that's one of our favourite lines, yeah, if you can't tell. Uh, he continues, I have no issue with Gaiman. I'm a firm friend of Dale Winton, for example, one of the gayest men in Europe. <laughs> now, <laughs> Has he won an award now, for that? I, well, I did Google who is the gayest man in Europe, but sadly it yielded no useful search <laughs> results, unfortunately. Image, so we'll just some lovely pictures. Did, did not image search. Um, but yeah, and it's also, there's a very good uh, thread that continues in Partridge Fiction. The consistent trait that he claims the BBC is full of homosexuals. So I think... Uh, in Alan's head, he kind of sees the term as being liberal and homosexual are essentially interchangeable. I do like the line where he says, I once shared a stage at a charity dinner with Elton John. Then again, he did used to be married to a woman. I know he's with David Furnish now, but I've long suspected that relationship is just a cover for his heterosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> Keep waiting, Alan. <laughs> uh, I've got an interesting quote from Steve Coogan from a Time Out interview from, I think, about 2013. So uh, he said, Alan has to reflect the zeitgeist. He was a rather intolerant Daily Mail reading Little Englander, and he has to fit in with the new liberal consensus. David Cameron now at least pretends to like gays. You have to reflect that. Uh, he, so, a bit of a Cameron dig there yeah. from Coogan. Um, I don't think he was gay, Coogan said, but he was worried that he might be. He mm. doesn't know quite what he is. He thinks, if that bloke's gay, maybe I am. And I think that really does colour this whole thing. Mm. There's kind of there's a kind of fear, but also an obsession with it almost. Like, he's he's he, he's not homosexual, but perhaps he's homocurious, yeah. if that's uh, even a term. Or well, homosceptic, um, isn't that his... Uh that's what he says, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that, that puts it in more of a negative yeah, light. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, interestingly, uh, and this is Alan, not Coogan, my assistant was typical of this worldview, somehow managing to reconcile the twin passions of home-baking and homo-bashing. So I thought it was interesting. Alan knows it's wrong when Lynn is anti-homosexuals because he thinks he's open-minded and inclusive, yes. but he actually has no idea how awful he is. Yeah. Well, I was kind of thinking I had a slightly different take on that. I wondered if he was almost like channeling his views through uh, Lynn's views to kind of safe put, put it onto her. Safe for like, him to express. It's it. like this is what Lynn thinks, but secretly I actually agree with Lynn. It's that kind of thing that you get in like newspaper articles where people say, you know, some say that yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah 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 yeah. blah, but not me. No, no. I'm different. <laughs> yeah. uh, you get a bit of insight into why Glenn is sacked in episode five, but is back on episode six. So Al Alan says in the show that Glenn, he sacks Glenn for insubordination, but the legal argument was that insubordination is a disciplinary issue <laughs> only in the military and therefore not grounds for dismissal in the private sector, which saw him temporarily reinstated pending a tribunal. And now it's time for Nando's and NES. And NES stands for... The Nando's Efficiency System. That's right. It's what everyone's waiting to talk about. Yeah, so Alan, <laughs> there's quite a lengthy section of this chapter about Alan and Glenn <laughs> going think, to regular Nando's. to be fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I like the fact that uh, Alan kind of starts off by being a bit uh, mystified by the fact that, by being slightly miffed by Nando's, in fact, that it's a bewildering ordering system in which customers <laughs> must pay for food at the counter, set the table themselves, and then wait for the waiter to bring the meal over. When waiter is a lofty term. Yeah, yeah. When, you have it when you see it written down here, you're actually like, actually, that's quite a smart way of doing it, isn't it? Well, that's <laughs> the thing. Alan, Alan doesn't like it. Uh, he's slightly put off by it, but I, I'm quite happy with the fact you paid for your food. Once you've eaten, yeah. you can leave. Yeah, no yeah, waiting I mean, around. It's fine, but I guess what I, I can see Alan's point in that he's used to a, re a restaurant system that's been around for generations, mm. and now suddenly he's finding he's going to what he believes will be a, a, a Portuguese restaurant and then he's basically finding that a lot of the legwork that used to be done by the people employed there he's <laughs> now expected to do for himself. God knows what you'd think about Deliveroo. <laughs> <laughs> well, that it's fine because Alan and Glenn have developed their own NES, Nando's efficiency system. Uh, I'll talk through it very quickly. Basically, they secure a table coats over the back of the chairs. They separate. Alan's role is to grab a menu and secure a place in the queue. From there, he loudly reads out the food options so Glenn can hear. <laughs> Glenn, meanwhile, is scurrying to the far side of the restaurant to grab 
cutlery, napkins and condiments. All the while listening and shouting his order back to Alan. Alan places the order and pays. They usually end up back at the table at roughly the same time and enjoy their chicken dinners whilst chuckling at the many people who are still waiting for theirs despite having arrived way before us. I like the idea of this system, but what it neglects to mention is that it does involve everybody else in the restaurant having to basically listen to Alan going, <laughs> Glenn! Glenn! No, veggie, no veggie burger, no. It doesn't come with pineapple. For yeah. about 10 minutes. I think Alan would love that. Yeah. Quick quick round robin round the table. What heat are you going for when you go to Nando's? Oh, uh, what's the mango one? Mango and li- lime, is it? Is yeah. that the weakest one? I find Nando's medium is most people's hot. Wow, okay. Tom Dark? Uh, I like medium chicken with the hot sauce. Good, good. What's below medium? It's medium. Well, there's it's a lemon mango and, one mango and, and herb. herb. Lemon, lemon and herb. Lemon and herb. Yeah, okay. that one probably. I would probably go, depending how I'm feeling, either lemon or herb or medium with the garlic Nando sauce smothered all over the chicken. Uh, how do you get that? It's one of the things that you take. <laughs> oh, one, right. of the big, one of the big sauce <laughs> jars. Baffled by Nando's. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. I, Your Nando's efficiency system isn't very efficient, is it? <laughs> I, I don't really like Nando's. Bombshell. After the lengthy description of Nando's and the Nez, uh, we then move on towards the end of the chapter. Alan writes, What's of me and Ponder? Well, I don't talk much about our rekindled friendship. My assistant still harbours an openly bigoted dislike of Glenn and his husband, whose name I don't know. So I also enjoyed that. <laughs> Alan thinks their friendship's back on track. He's open-minded. It's Lynn who's the bigoted one, but he hasn't bothered to learn or remember Glenn's husband's name. And also, uh, not boyfriend, husband. So this has been yeah, going yeah, on for yeah, years. Yeah. Yep. I have one one last point, and that is the name of Glenn Ponder in the Alan Partridge canon. So in Knowing Me, Knowing You, we know that the in the last episode, they say that an anagram of Glenn Ponder is porn legend. Do you reckon that what came first, the name or the anagram to work it back into the joke? It's pretty neat if it was the name first. So maybe they did, they had a so they didn't have a name for the conductor, and then they, when they wrote that bit of the, all the way I through the series, that's quite a long way yeah. into the series. Yeah, yeah. Unless it was just an incredible coincidence. I don't know. Well, I guess we'll never know. Well, I mean... (laughs) That's what I mean. I like to think think my mum chose my name on the basis that it uh, (laughs) it anagrammed to a dark bosom. (laughs) (laughs) Was it Grandpa Retail for Tom? (laughs) No, that was Alan Partridge. Alan Partridge, Uh, Grandpa Retail. What was Tom Dark? Uh, shattered bombs, I think. Oh. <laughs> Yours was anal chlorides. Oh, God. Don't forget that anal chlorides. Anal chlorides. And Nicholas on that order. bombshell, I think that brings <laughs> us to the end of today's episode. Uh, but we're going to be t- lifting off show-wise next week as uh, Pear Tree Productions blossoms and Alan blooms. Um, but if you'd like to get in touch with us in the meantime, you can email thepartridgepod at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at thepartridgepod, facebook.com/thepartridgepod, and now Instagram at monkey tennis pod. Uh, so thanks very much for joining us. Don't forget live tickets to see us dissect Knowing Me, Knowing Yule live on stage in London at the Prince Charles Cinema uh, are on sale at postpoppodcast.com slash monkey tennis live. I think that's it for now. We'll see you next time to dissect iPartridge further. From all of us at Monkey Tennis, thanks and goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Monkey Tennis? Smelly Alan Fartridge. Linton Travel Tavern seemed an obvious choice. Monkey Tennis? At the BBC of all places. Be real. Monkey Tennis? Where's my assistant? I do not know. Monkey Tennis? I wish things had turned out differently, but I'm glad they didn't. Monkey Tennis? It will be called Alan's Show. I decided and would be absolutely ace. Monkey Tennis? But needless to say, I had the last laugh. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.